Matthew 17, I invite you to turn back to that passage. We've just entitled it, Heaven, a Glorious Prospect. A Glorious Prospect. Let's unite our heart together. We word a prayer as we come to the preaching of this particular passage. Lord, we do thank Thee again for Thy presence. We thank Thee for the old hymns of Zion. Praise the Lord, we can sing tonight that Christ, Emmanuel, has all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Oh, we thank the Lord that when we get theirs, the people of God will not look upon the garments, but Lord will look upon the bridegroom's dear face. Oh, Father, what a blessed prospect to behold the face of Jesus. Face to face with Christ, what will it be? Oh, Father, we pray you'd Bring us, Lord, into this passage. Give us understanding. Give us, Lord, the teachable spirit tonight. Help us. We can say, Lord, it's a familiar passage. But, oh God, we pray that yet thou would speak through these verses. Speak, Lord, to thy children. Speak, Lord, to the unconverted. Oh God, we pray that thou would be pleased to have a word in season to each and every heart. Remember others that will listen in later on, even think of believers and friends in England tonight. And Lord, there's no such place or opportunity to meet like this. Lord, we pray that thou would encourage their heart, and thou might bless them even through the word. Now, Lord, I pray thou would fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give me help from above. Give us those words that must and shall prevail. Give us, Lord, those prevailing words we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the believers in Corinth, was to say these words, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. The Lord speaking to his disciples, and by inference, that means to all his church, all his people, was to comfort them with the thought. In John chapter 14, he was going to prepare a place for them. And yet, men and women, there are those today, as there were in the days of the apostles, who don't believe there is a heaven. They doubt the existence of God's heaven, and they doubt the existence of God's hell. You can't have one without the other. They will even doubt whether there's a God or not. But upon the authority of God's word, those doubts are answered. And to such people, we would have to say what the Savior said to the unbelieving Sadducees. Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm at the minute reading a little biography on J.C. Ryle. Protestant Bishop of Liverpool of a bygone age. In 1877, Lyle had to contend against the liberals within the Church of England, against those who denied there was such a thing as the eternal punishment in hell. And he did so by taking them to the Word of God. We can say tonight boldly, there's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun. But although the Savior warned about hell and that place of eternal damnation. Yet there were times when his disciples heard him speak of the glories of heaven. But little did Peter, James, and John realize that they would have a little preview of the glory of Christ and what heaven 
would be like. These three disciples, they often were uh, found close to the Lord. They were taken, for example, into Jairus' house to see the daughter raised from the dead. They were those who went that little bit further in Gethsemane and were petitioned by the Lord to watch and pray. And we see them here. The Lord was to bring them up into a high mountain apart. And although this account of what has become known as the transfiguration of Christ is recorded in three of the Gospels, yet it is only Luke uh, who uh, leaves us in no doubt as to the reason why the Savior was to go up into the mountain. We read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, he went up into the mountain to pray. Isn't it a lovely thought there? In this old world with its many discouragements, And you read on, you'll see there's plenty of discouragements at the foot of the mountain where the other disciples were. But in this world where there's many discouragements and heartaches, the child of God can have a little taste of heaven. The child of God can breathe that fresh air of the Father's house in the place of prayer. The Savior went up into the mountain to pray. And tonight I want us to look at this glorious sight. To take a glimpse within the veil, as the veil is drawn back, as it were, and for the unsaved to realize there is such a place for all eternity that you can be assured of if you will but accept the gospel of saving grace in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe it will be also a message that will encourage the child of God tonight of what Christ has purchased for us. Won't you notice the Christ of heaven When we behold this scene, we're drawn to consider the central figure on the mount that day was the person of Christ. It was the Savior who was transfigured before them. It was the Savior who's surrounded by the others. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is spoken of as the well-beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. It was the Savior who was the focus of the disciples' vision. For when they lifted up their eyes, We read that they saw no man save Jesus only. Oh, that's the prayer of the preacher every time we come into the house of God. That you wouldn't merely see an earthly preacher, but you would see Christ. Spurgeon, he was one who desired not that the people go out and say, oh, it's a a, a tremendous preacher, but that they would go out and say, don't we have a glorious Savior? Make no mistake about it. The person of Christ is the central figure in heaven. The Lamb has a glory in Emmanuel's land. John in the revelations upon the Isle of Patmos was to witness the same. For we read in Revelation 7 and 17 these words, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them on to living fountains of water. The Lord will be the center of attraction in heaven just as he is seen to be upon this mount. Fanny Crosby could write those words in her hymn. Oh, the dear ones in glory, beckoning me to come. But I long to see my Savior first of all. The Lord will be seen in heaven, the one who is our Redeemer, the one who loved his people and gave himself for them. What will it be to behold him? But you know there's something else because we see the glory of Christ. He not appear in his humiliation. He came as an earthly babe 
born of a virgin. He came and was born in that old lowly manger. But he'll not be seen in his humiliation. He'll not be seen in his agony as was witnessed on the cross. But he will shine in all his glory and all his honor. Upon this mind the Lord was to be changed before them. And you know there's two things in particular that stood out. His face did shine as the sun. It was what John saw being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It says when he turned around, he saw his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Revelation 1.16 The face of Christ, that face that was once marred more than any man's, shall show forth his glory. It will shine above the brightness of the sun. But you know, also is noted his raiment. Look at the words of verse 2. And it was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. His whole person will be radiant in the glory of heaven. The king shall be seen in all his splendor, and for the sinner saved by God's grace, we have the glorious knowledge that when we, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. His glory will be imparted to us. Wasn't that the great hope of the troubled and tried Job? For in the midst of his sufferings, he never lost his faith. He never lost that great sight of what he would see one day. I refer you to Job 19. Job 19 in the words of verse 25. I'm sure you've heard the words before. He says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Now Job's not speaking about the first advent of Christ there. He's saying he will stand on the latter day upon the earth. It's the second coming. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. The glory of Christ shall radiate through heaven, that there will not be need of the sun, nor of the moon, for the Lamb is the light thereof. You know, there's something else that shall be experienced. The fellowship of Christ. On this holy mount, the Lord is seen to be in the midst. He's seen to be in fellowship with them. He's not just another prophet. He is not one of the great uh, apostles. He's the Son of God. And he's given that honored, and he's given that central place that is his due. He is the object of their worship. What a scene this was to those on the mount. Because what it was to them, it will be to every child of God, and we shall behold and we shall experience one day. For the saints and glory are said to be gathered unto him, and all shall be congregated around that throne. Those from every nation, every kindred, every people, and every tongue. There will be fellowship with the blessed Redeemer. There will be fellowship with the Godhead. For upon this mount, the Father's voice was to be heard, to utter his pleasure in his beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's sweet communion here. There's sweet fellowship seen here in this mount. It's just a foretaste of what the fellowship will be like in heaven itself. But men and women, can I underline to you, to have that fellowship in heaven, you must first have fellowship with the Savior here on earth. 
George Swinnick said this, Heaven must be in thee before thou canst be in heaven. What did he mean? For you, friend, born into this world in sin, to ever behold the person and the glory of Christ in all His fullness, the words will fail to describe, to have this eternal fellowship with the Godhead, then first of all you need to have your sin dealt with here. You need to behold by faith this same Jesus who took the guilty hell deserving sinner's place on the cross, who willingly suffered, bled, and died so that you might have eternal life. For you to behold the glories of heaven, you must first behold the Lamb of God which taketh away, beareth away the sin of the world. Have you done that? It's at the cross, you see, where the burdens of sin are lifted. And they're rolled away. Oh, if there's one in the gathering tonight in the congregation that under the sound and the preaching of the gospel who has not yet beheld the Lamb of God by faith, that tonight in the gospel you'd behold the blessed Redeemer. He would become the center and the focus of all your attractions. Because you see, he's central in this whole passage. He's central in the mount. The focus is upon him. And so it will be in heaven. What about the conversation in heaven? After the Lord was transfigured before these disciples, these three disciples, there's the appearance of Moses and Elijah. You'll notice in the words of verse 3, says, and behold. You see the wee word behold. It's not just to fill out a bit of white paper. It means you to stop and think of this. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias. That's the, new, the Greek uh, rendering of Elijah. Talking with him. It's interesting that these two were to appear. There's many a character in the Old Testament that could be named in there, but they weren't. It's Moses and Elijah. Why? Moses was the giver of the law. And Elijah was considered to be the chief of the prophets. It's Luke who says in his account that they appeared in glory or glorious. Here's Moses, whom God buried in an unmarked grave. And no man ever knew the place where he was buried. For God was the undertaker. Deuteronomy chapter 34, <clears throat> verse 5, And so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of a sepulcher unto this day. God was the undertaker. The man who was closest to God in any. For the testimony of heaven is that there arose not a prophet since in Israel whom the Lord knew face to face. Isn't that some testimony? And yet still a man 
A man who became, because of his disobedience, forfeited, crossing over into the promised land, leading the children of Israel into that promised land because of his disobedience, whose only glimpse of it was what God showed him about Mount Nebo. And what a, a miracle that was. What a vision that was. Because he could see right from the north, right down to Beersheba in the south, east and west as well. And he brought that before the Lord in different times. So the Lord might permit him to go in, but the Lord said no. You see, the Lord gave him a better answer. For down through the centuries of time now, where is he standing? He's standing on a different mount. It's in the promised land. It's with Canaan. But he's standing with the Son of God. And along with him there's Elias. The prophet of the Lord who stood when the rest of the land apostatized apart from the 7,000 that wouldn't bow the knee. The man who took on the prophets of Baal and the power of God and was to see them defeated. The man who's remembered maybe most of all because he never had to go through the valley of the shadow of death, but he was taken. And they were to be found talking unto the Lord and unto the Savior. These two were to appear because it showed that they were in entire agreement with them. The message that they brought was the same message of Christ was bringing in his ministry. All the types which were in the time of Moses and Elijah, they all pointed forth in time. They all found their complete fulfillment in the person of Christ. Moses spoke of the Lord. Elias spoke of the Lord. Now they're talking with him. But you know, it also showed that Christ was neither Elias nor was he one of the prophets, as some had suggested. But he was distinct from them. He was above them. He was more glorious than any of them. Their conversation is with the Lord. What will it not be to look into the face of Christ in glory, but also to speak with him? We speak with him uh, through prayer now. But what will it be to him to be to speak to the Lord face to face? I want you to understand that the content of the conversation is also revealed to us. What they were speaking about. Hello, Matthew simply says that they talk with him. Yet I want you to come to Luke again. Because Luke gives us this little extra detail in his account. Luke chapter 9. And the words of verse 30 will bring you there. And it says, And behold... There it is again. There talked with him two men, which was Moses and Elias. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. There's the, the content of the conversation. Luke 9, 31. What were they talking about? It's about the cross of Calvary. It's about the lamb that was to be slain at Jerusalem. You see, it says that they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. All their talk on this holy mount was about the accomplishing of the work of redemption at the cross called Calvary. Their talk was about the death that he should die. Isn't it interesting to consider? You see that word decease? In the original, it's the same word as exodus. The same very title as the second book of the law of Moses. 
For in Exodus, what's Exodus? We're looking at that in our studies, of course. We're given a detailed account of how the children of Israel were to depart and were to leave Egypt. There was an Exodus out of Egypt. And that way, that was what Moses and Elias were talking about. It was about the decease, the departure of the Lord. The Lord was going to die. He was going to depart from the scene of time and those who had spoken of him and those who had foretold his death were now speaking of the same as it now imminently drew near. There's also the thought that within that word there's the truth of the resurrection. For the Savior, after he rose again from the dead, he would ascend, he would depart back to the Father in heaven, of which the taking up of Elijah, no doubt, was a, a type. And that is what Israel were also to experience. For not only did they depart from Egypt, but God brought them out that he might bring them in to the promised land. That land that flowed with milk and honey. What a truth is revealed to our own hearts. For that day is coming when every blood-washed child of God shall be gathered unto the Father. Yes, our bodies will be for a time laid in the earth. But our, at our departure, at our exodus from this world, the eternal soul lives on. And it goes to that eternity which has been prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. And when that great and final day comes, all who are in their graves shall hear his voice and all shall come forth. And for those who died in Christ, they shall be given a glorified body, a glorified body fitted for heaven. And that body will be reunited with the soul. And it will be forever with the Lord. And can I suggest to you that our conversation and glory will be exactly the same as it was in this mind. We will, like Moses and Elijah, be talking about the Lamb of Calvary. We'll be talking about the Lamb. Our central theme will be the once for all blood sacrifice of our Redeemer which was all sufficient to save our lost souls. Oh, now we only know in part, but then shall we fully know. Now we only scratch the surface of what it cost God's Holy One to bear away our sin. But then we shall fully know the suffering of our Savior. Then we shall know the depths which Christ had to plummet at the cross in order to procure our salvation, in order to save a rebel and a wretch such like you and I. Then we will fully know. And where words fail to express the feeling of the heart, then that great congregation around the throne will break out into singing that new song, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I tell you, the conversation in glory will be of the blessed Lamb. It'll be of Calvary, for without it there will be no heaven for fallen man. But bless God, there's hope tonight for the lost and for the uh, condemned sinner. And that hope is found in Christ, and it's found in the finished work of Calvary's cross that is freely offered to you in the gospel. Dear friend, I must ask you in the light of all that Christ has done on the cross, is it nothing to all ye that pass by? 
You've heard the cross preached before. You've heard Christ uplifted before you before. Will you not call upon him to save you so that you can leave this meeting house tonight speaking of Calvary, speaking of the one who loved you, speaking of the one who has saved you, who has pardoned you from all your sin, who has given you the assurance that one day you'll be with him in heaven. That's what the child of God has and enjoys. Our conversation is of the Lamb. Just as it was with Moses and Elias that they stood and as they spoke with the Savior on this mount. But you know, there's one other piece and thought and truth that I want you to see before we leave it tonight. The congregation in heaven. Peter obviously enjoyed this time spent there. He never forgot it. He never forgot it. And we'll not take the time tonight, but if you go home, you, you look at, it, at the first chapter of a second epistle, and you'll see he never forgot this day. For he speaks of it as when the Lord's majesty appeared. And he was to ask the Lord that it might be extended. He didn't want these moments to cease. He wanted to make tabernacles or booze for them. He would rather have their company than the crowds and the throng at the foot of the mountain. It was better to be there and to hear their conversation than to see the distress and the misery of sin below. But those present on the mount that day teach us who'll be in heaven, who the congregation will be. There will be the whole church of God's redeemed. The general assembly and church of the firstborn is what we read of in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 in the words of verse 22. The apostle says, But you are come unto Mount Zion, Unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're given here verses that speak about heaven. And what's in heaven? To an innumerable company of angels. We associate heaven with the angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. There's the words which are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, God's in heaven. And to the spirits of just men, be it perfect, the glorified saints are there. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, he's there. And to the blood of sprinkling that sprinkleth better things than that of Abel, the blood's there. Do you notice the general assembly and church of the firstborn? And that general assembly and church of the firstborn will consist of the Old Testament saints as represented by Moses and Elijah. Please hear me tonight. There are not many ways to heaven. There are not many gospels to heaven. There are not many ways to be saved. There's only one. There's only one gospel. And Moses and Elijah, along with Abraham and all of those other Old Testament characters and saints, the, the Abraham, the father of the faithful, of course, and all the rest of those saints were saved in the same way as you can be saved tonight. Please don't listen to the nonsense that there's a different gospel for the Old Testament and now a different one for the New Testament economy. There's one gospel. 
There's one way of God's salvation, for by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Old Testament saints, they look forward by faith. They saw Christ. They rejoiced in his day. They looked forward by faith to Calvary. You and I, we have to look back by faith to the cross. Those New Testament saints will also be amongst the company in that congregation heaven. They're represented by Peter, James, and John. Every one of God's redeemed shall be there. Not one of God's chosen shall be lost. Christ is the surety of his people. And the word surety gives you the idea of a guarantee. And as such, he has undertaken all that is necessary for that congregation to be in heaven one day. That man fulfilling God's law. That man shedding his own precious blood. Christ is our guarantee. He is our surety. And he shall not fail in bringing many sons to glory. Yea, even all that the Father giveth to him. Isn't that what he said in John 17, the great high priestly prayer? John 17, if I can just read to you the words of verse 12. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Those that thou givest me, I have kept. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one will be lost. Of all the Old Testament saints, represented by Elijah and Moses, and all of the New Testament saints, of which we are a part, Because we're in the last days. And that will make up the congregation in heaven. There's something else about this congregation. It'll be recognizable. I touched a little on the Bible class this morning about this. These disciples, just think of it now. There is a 400 year period between Malachi and Matthew. And you've got to go way, way back from Malachi uh, before you reach Elijah and further again before you reach Moses. And yet you look at the words of the words of verse 4. And Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, how did he know who they were? He recognized them. He had heard about them. He had read about them in his Old Testament Bible and Scriptures. But he saw them and he recognized them. And he says, Lord, he didn't know what he was asking, of course. Luke brings that out. But he says, Lord, can we not make three booths? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They had never seen them before, yet they recognized them. Loved ones in the glory shall be recognized. But they, there will cease to be, of course, those family ties for every one of God's children are in one family. And when we get to glory, we'll know our loved ones. We'll know our loved ones. But we'll know our loved ones the same way as we shall know Moses and Elijah. Let me just take you to First Thessalonians chapter 2 just to prove it again. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at the words of verse 19. And Paul's writing here to these saints in Thessalonica that they were dear unto him. He had seen this church formed. 
He thanked God for them. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, if I can just digress, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of love, your labor of love, your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus and in the sight of God and our Father. He loved these saints. But you know, he says in chapter 2, in the words of verse 19, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? That doesn't make any sense unless he knew and understood that he would recognize the saints from Thessalonica. He said, That's our hope. That's, that's the crown of my, my joy, my rejoicing. He, he rejoiced that he would see them face to face at Christ's return. He expected to recognize them. Those beloved Thessalonica, Thessalonica converts. When we walk the street of heaven... When we stand around that throne, can I tenderly ask you tonight personally, will we see you there? Will we see you there? Will we recognize that the entire congregation has been safely gathered in? Or will it be those ones missing? Will be recognized. You know, there's one final thought. If you're not away from First Thessalonians, I'll take you back there again. The congregation in heaven will consist of some who are remaining when the Lord comes back. First Thessalonians chapter four. Look at the words just of verse 13 for the moment. He says, But I would not have you... Again, he's writing to these beloved converts. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Why were they not to sorrow? He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also will sleep, which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with them. You see, we're not parted forever. Those who died in Christ will meet again. For the Lord comes back again. They'll come with him. They're coming with him. That's what he's saying. He says, don't, don't, don't be in ignorance about this. I believe the scriptures teach that the church will go through what is known as the great time of tribulation. There will be saints of God still in the earth when Christ comes back with those glorified saints that we knew. That truth is taught in, in Matthew 24, but you don't have to go there. Just stop at First Thessalonians 4. And you read verse 16 now. So we have seen those who have died in Christ and they'll come again with the Lord when he comes back. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. There's nothing silent about that, by the way. 
No silent rapture. You believe in a silent rapture, you've got to take a pen and write it in because it's not in the book. There's nothing silent about a trumpet. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Remember we spoke about the old body going into the, into the earth. And Job said, although the worms will eat my flesh, the dead in Christ shall rise first. There'll be that glorified body. Then, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord then we which are alive and remain you see the church of Jesus Christ will still be on earth when the Lord comes back it will be the saints on earth when the Lord comes back one day and we are reminded of it in this passage in 1 Thessalonians the dead in Christ shall rise first and then the living saints will join them <clears throat> and will meet the Lord in the air and so shall we be ever with the Lord. And he says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And you know, men and women, we don't even have to leave Matthew 17 because we're reminded of that in the words of verse 1 of the chapter. It says, and after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. He bringeth them up. They were living. The living disciples, the three disciples. And he's bringing them up into that mountain. Time is coming. And the Lord shall bring us up to where our joy will be interrupted and where we will be saved from the very presence of sin. There will be no sin there. Nothing that defileth shall ever enter in. I say in closing, have you this assurance? Have you the assurance that you'll be there one day? Are you sure that you're one of the company of God's redeemed? Are you sure that you'll be part of that congregation? If not, then come nigh. Come nigh. Know the cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb to wash away every spot and every stain. And you leave the house tonight knowing of an assurance, preacher, one day I'll be there and I'll see Christ face to face and I'll tell the story saved by grace. May God help you. May the Lord help you to come if you have no such assurance even tonight.